Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. John chapter 4, John chapter 4, and go down to verse 23. John 4, 23. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way to the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Father, I pray that your text would jump off of the page today, and that it would go into every heart represented here, and that you would do that thing which only you can do, which is to convict and encourage a human soul. Do that today for us, O Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, relates the hazards that plagued the climbers in their expedition to Mount Everest during the spring of 1996. That year, the attempt to reach the summit resulted in great loss of life. One of those who died was Andy Harris, who was one of the expedition leaders. Harris had stayed at the peak past the deadline, and on his descent, he became in dire need of oxygen. Harris radioed his predicament to the base camp, telling them of his need, and that he had come upon a collection of oxygen canisters left by the other climbers, but they were all empty. However, those who had passed by those canisters on their own return from the summit knew that they were not empty, but in actuality were full. Even as they pleaded with him on the radio to make use of them, it was to no avail. Already starved for oxygen, Harris continued to argue that the canisters were empty. The problem was that the lack of what he needed so disoriented his mind that even though he was surrounded by a restoring supply, he continued to complain of their absence. The very thing he held in his hand was absent in his brain and ravaged his capacity to recognize what he was clutching in his grasp. That's tragic, isn't it? But even more tragic is we can do the exact same thing. Jesus has promised us living water that produces a life full of purpose and joy, and yet many Christians are dying spiritually because they refuse to avail themselves of the living water. 
Instead of canisters of oxygen, the believer runs the risk of holding all the promises of God in their hand. But instead of drawing from them, we just carry them around with us, dying a little more each day. The good news is, it doesn't have to be that way. Listen to how the Apostle Peter stated it in 2 Peter 1-2. He writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Do you know what that's telling us? God has given us everything we need for a victorious Christian life. Notice, I didn't say an easy Christian life. Peter wrote those words to people who are being persecuted for their faith to a degree that none of us has experienced. But how does Peter say that we apprehend such a life? He tells us that God has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we can be partakers of that divine nature and we're able to escape the corruption that is in this world through lust. Now, those promises are only found in the Bible. And it's through those that we can be partakers of God's nature. And the result of that is we can escape the corruption that is in this world through lust. Please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If we think we can grow in Christ without consistently immersing ourselves in the scripture and then obeying what it says, it's not just difficult, it's actually impossible. Later on in chapter 6, Jesus will say, It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We're going to learn today that God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. They flow together. It's not either or, it's both and. It's true as we take in the word, we will grow in the spirit. Well, that was just the introduction. If we would all just put those words into practice, we could finish the sermon right now and all go to the Cracker Barrel. But since I don't like the Cracker Barrel... Look at verse 23 with me. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Many people believe that when Jesus spoke of the spirit in this verse, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. I personally do not believe that that is the case. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which we can only worship God by the Holy Spirit who is at work in our hearts. But in this verse, I don't think Jesus is speaking of that. He is speaking of spirit generally, not the Holy Spirit. I think I can make this clearer by placing it in the context of the three parts of a man's nature. Man is a trinity. He has a body, a soul, and a spirit. Jesus is saying that nothing is true worship of God except that which takes place in a man's spirit. 
For example, many people worship with the body. That means they consider themselves to have worshipped if they have been in the right place, doing the right things at the right time. In Christ's day, the woman thought this meant being either in Jerusalem at the temple there or at Mount Gerizim at the Samaritan's temple. In our day, this would refer to people who think they have worshipped God simply because they have occupied a seat in church on Sunday morning or sung a hymn or lit a candle or crossed themselves or knelt in an aisle. But Jesus says this might not be true worship. Some of these customs may be vehicles for worship, but in some cases, they may also hinder it. But they are not worship in themselves. Therefore, we must not confuse worship with the particular things that we do on Sunday morning. In addition, however, we must not confuse worship with feeling. Why? Because worship does not originate with the soul any more than it originates with the body. Please understand that the soul is the seat of our emotions. Now, it may be the case, and often is, that the emotions are stirred in real worship. At times, tears fill our eyes or joy floods our hearts. But unfortunately, it is possible for these things to happen and still no true worship occur. It is possible to be moved by a song or by a sermon and yet not come to genuine awareness of God and a fuller praise of his ways in nature. True, true worship only occurs when that part of man his spirit, which is affiliated with the divine nature, since God is spirit, actually meets with God. And then finds itself praising him for his love, wisdom, beauty, truth, holiness, compassion, mercy, grace, power, and all his other attributes. William Barclay has commented on this point. He writes, The true, the genuine worship is when man, through his spirit, attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True and genuine worship is not to come to a certain place. It's not to go through a certain ritual or liturgy. It is not even to bring certain gifts. True worship is when the spirit, the immortal and invisible part of man, speaks to and meets with God, who is also immortal and invisible. Another way of making this point is to note that there are three great must in John's Gospel. The first must occurs in John 3 7 where Jesus says you must be born again. The second must is in verse 14 of the same verse or the same chapter. There Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up. The verses we are studying today gives us the third must. For they tell us that all who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. These three, these three great doctrines the necessity for the new birth, the necessity of Christ's death, and the necessity of true worship all belong together. Verse 25, please. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The Samaritans were expecting the Messiah the same way the Jews were. When the woman exclaimed, when he comes, he will tell us all things, she was probably thinking of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah that is found in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. 
In that verse, God told Moses of a coming prophet who would tell the people all things. The central truth of this section is found in Jesus' revelation of himself as the Messiah. He did so here for the first time into a most unlikely non-Jew. But why did he decide not to first declare his Messiahship to the Jewish religious leaders who were the most politically correct and influential target? Why choose to reveal that truth to an obscure, despised, and immoral Samaritan woman? The answer lies in the sweeping truth that in the matter of salvation, God is not one to show partiality. In fact, it is often the lowly and the downcast who respond to the gospel, while the proud and the elite scoff at it. Later on, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That sounds just like the qualifications for joining Calvary Chapel, doesn't it? I recently had one of our newer members tell me that our church reminded her of the island of misfit toys. And she was glad to be part of it. I couldn't agree more. It seems that God has planted this church to minister to people who don't fit in anywhere else. I don't know what that says about me being the pastor, but anyway. On another occasion, Jesus said, For many are called, but few are chosen. Of course, it has been said that once we get saved, that could be changed to many are cold and a few are frozen. They also say it's sometimes led by Pastor Jack Frost, but I find that offensive to me, and I like being the hero of all my illustrations. Years ago, media mogul and billionaire Ted Turner, who founded CNN, told a reporter that Christianity was a religion for losers. I absolutely agree with him, but with a little twist. In Matthew 16:24, Jesus said, and Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the entire world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So what Jesus is saying is regards to fitting into this world and all its values, all Christians are losers to one degree or another. And we should be cool with that, since this world has nothing of eternal significance to offer us. Notice in verse 26 where Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. The interesting thing is the word he is not in the original text. The Lord actually said, I who speak to you am. Now, some people have the audacity to claim that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Turn them to this verse. It couldn't be any more clear. Actually, these words are a title. 
To be precise, Jesus did not really say, I am he. The he he has been added by the English translators. He simply said, I am. The point of this claim is that the title I am was similar to, if not identical with, the great Old Testament name of God, which was Jehovah. This is why Paul wrote of him. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The name which is above all other names is Lord, which means Jehovah. This is in its turn an exact equivalent of the words I am. This is God's own name. Thus, the name that is above all earthly names, and it is at this name, Jehovah, Lord, or I am, that all beings in heaven and earth will one day bow. Here's another one of the I am statements that are so common in the Gospel of John. Twenty-three times the Lord says I am, and seven times he adds a rich metaphor. And there are seven other very important instances in which the words are coupled with the noun, describing him as the source of all good and the answer to all men's needs. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Now how much of this registered with the woman of Samaria? We don't know. We do know that several other times during his ministry, Jesus used the words I am to refer to his deity. He once said to the Jews, If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. This means they would not be saved unless they recognized that Jesus was God. We also know that even the Jews themselves once took the word in this sense, for later in the same conversation, after Jesus explained more fully who he was, they said, or he said, before Abraham was born, I am. We read that those listening to Jesus attempted to stone him for blasphemy. Once again, people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God obviously don't know the scripture very well. Look at verse 27 with me. And at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, why do you seek or why are you talking with her? The Greek phrase translated at this point or at that very moment captures Christ's complete mastery over the situation. The disciples came back from buying food at Sychar. At this exact moment, Jesus revealed his Messiahship to this Samaritan woman. Now, had they returned earlier, they would have interrupted the conversation before it reached its dramatic conclusion. And had they returned later, they would have missed hearing Jesus' declaration. This was divine providence at work. But beyond this, in addition to being a woman, the person to whom Jesus was talking was a loose living Samaritan, a sinner. And the disciples knew, as well as everybody, that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This was more than ample ground for the surprise and bewilderment that John tells us overtook the disciples. But the amusing part of the story is in the fact that the disciples would have been far more surprised and bewildered if they had been able to see what had taken place in the life of the woman as the result of the Lord's conversation with her. 
They had already learned that Jesus was not bound by Jewish expectations, traditions, and prejudices, and that he always had good reasons for doing what he did. There was an important lesson here for the disciples to learn. Although the gospel would first be preached to Israel, it would not be preached exclusively to Israel. It would cross all cultural barriers, which was a concept that was difficult for many Jews to accept. The unforgettable story of Jonah's dramatic refusal to obey God when he told him to go preach to Nineveh demonstrates the Jews' anti-missionary attitude. In fact, if you know the story, Jonah ran in the opposite direction. Now, his disobedience did not stem from fear for his own safety, but from an unwillingness to see his enemies, who were the hated Assyrians, possibly experience God's mercy. And so God sent a big fish to swallow Jonah, and then gave him three days in that stomach to think about his life. You have to wonder about all the things he prayed during that time. I did hear one man say that he bet one of Jonah's prayers was, Oh Lord, please let me go out the same way I came in. <laughs> Which, if true, the Lord answered by having the fish vomit Jonah on the shore. I know that sounds gross, but it is better than the alternative. Verse 28, please. You're saying, thank God, please move on. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? As you read the Lord's interview with this woman, notice how her knowledge of Jesus increases until she acknowledges that he is the Christ. There were four stages in this experience. Back in verse 9 she said, and the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it you being a Jew ask a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now calling him a Jew had a derogatory implication. But then in verse 11 she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She has elevated him from a Jew to a much more respectable sir. Then in verse 19 she says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. She went from Jew to Sir, and now she sees him as a prophet. And then in verse 29 she says, Come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Her admiration and respect has traveled from Jew to Sir to prophet, and she finally recognizes that he is the Christ. I found that to be true in my own life as well. The more time I spend with Christ through the scripture and prayer and fasting, the more real that he becomes to me. Sometimes people tell me they don't feel close to God. And yet many times they spend very little to no time with him. Try that in any other relationship in your life and see how it works. How close would my relationship be with my wife if I spent all my time in another room and only texted her when I wanted a cup of coffee? That might work for a limited time. But sooner or later, I'd be afraid to drink the coffee. 
What has happened here was a Samaritan woman has been born again. She is the first clear example of this in the gospel. She had come down the hill a child of Adam's race, thinking only the life she had known and of her very mundane need for more water. Instead, she's met the second Adam, Jesus, who has filled her with the desire for a quality of life that she's never even dreamed of, and who has revealed himself to her as the one through whom that life is imparted to men and to women. As a result of Christ's words, woman believed on him and became his witness. This whole transaction is just fascinating to me. She had come with a bucket. He sent her back with springs of living water. She had come as a reject. He sent her back as being accepted by God himself. She came wounded. He sent her back whole. She came laden with questions. He sent her back as a source of answers. She came living a life of quiet desperation. She ran back overflowing with hope. You wonder... Why did she leave her water pot? I suggest two possible reasons. The first was, it's just an illustration. That which was previously important to her no longer mattered. The burden she had been carrying has now been left at the feet of Christ. Second, perhaps she left her water pot out of appreciation. You have told me about my sin and my need, said the woman. You've told me about true worship. You want a cup of water? Take the whole pot. Take everything I have. It is yours. I found that when people truly get saved, they quit asking, what can I get from God? And start asking, what can I give to God? And so she runs to the village to share this good news. This woman whose morality was suspect at best said, there's a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Thus it was no doubt. With a certain degree of apprehension, some of the men wanted to find out just how much he knew about them as well. Because of her shady past, this probably caused a few of the men there to immediately begin to sweat. The woman was wise and not bluntly declaring right here, though, that Jesus was the Messiah. Homer Kent explains the reason for her cautious, indirect approach. He writes, The woman immediately wanted to give testimony to others of what she had found, but she did so with utmost tact. It would have been unseemly, presumptuous, and probably ineffective for this woman to attempt to teach the men of the city regarding spiritual truth. Her background hardly qualified her to speak with authority on religious and spiritual matters. Therefore, a statement to them was phrased in a deliberately cautious way so as to not arouse antagonism. I believe there just had to be something about her at this point that just glowed. She has become a different person altogether and has experienced a 2 Corinthians 5.17 transformation. And just like her, those who truly thirst for the righteous God provides in salvation will confess and forsake their wicked ways. Scripture knows nothing of repentance, or I'm sorry, of salvation without repentance. And that always involves turning away from your sin. Jesus did not come to grant perfection in this life while leaving us to continue in sin. This is why he challenged her last week 
about her five husbands. There is no conversion without conviction. Previously, Jesus has used masterful metaphors and perfect parallels in his gentle yet convicting presentation of the gospel. But the woman, she was simple and untrained, just like me. And while I long to be more like Jesus as a masterful witness, I also realize that even in very simple, straightforward testimonies, there will be fruit. I don't need to be intimidated when I can't answer all the questions or come up with the right illustrations. I can join the Samaritan woman and say, simply, come and see. For scripture records that many believed because of that simple testimony. And like her, we live in the midst of a confused and hurting people. As we finish up this morning, Anne Lamott described the time when a fellow church member told about adopting her son through an organization called ASK, which stands for Adopt Special Kids. Part of the adoption process included filling out a questionnaire, checking yes or no for one's willingness to adopt babies that had been born addicted, disabled, or terminally ill. The couple had checked down the list. Their pastor was helping them to work through the process, and he later told their church that God, too, is like an adoptive parent who says, Sure, I'll take the kids who are addicted or terminal. I pick all the handicapped kids, and of course the sadist too, the selfish one, the drunkard and the liars. I choose them. I choose the disobedient ones and the terrified ones, the self-indulged ones and the troublemakers, the damaged ones and the unlovable ones. In love, I choose them all. I will be a parent to them all. I will end their separation and bring them home to me. Father, only you have that kind of love. And I pray, Lord, that we all in this room, within the sound of my voice, would know that love today. That you are the perfect parent. You are the only wise God. And it is only when we are obedient to you and follow your ways that we can have any true purpose and joy in this life. So help us, Lord. We do want to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that is only getting darker and harder every day. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.